Welcome to People with Purpose. So many people are looking for meaning, but they don't know where to start. Imagine a world where everyone could just get their purpose out of them and then actually make it happen. I'm David Roberts and I believe that we all have a purpose and with focus and a little help, people with purpose make a difference. And this show is where these stories come to life. So welcome to another episode of People with Purpose. Today I'm joined by uh, Paul Delo, who uh, from a challenging uh, start in life, uh, Paul has now uh, got himself into a position where he's a coach, mentor, helps others, and he's the founder of World Game Changers, which is a, a community interest uh, company uh, which uh, which looks to enhance people's lives and enhance the planet uh, through taking preserving action. So, Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you very much indeed, David. Glad to be here. So, where, where, what are you working on at the moment? What am I working on? Oh, blimey. Have you got a spare seven weeks' time, spare time, David, on that <laughs> one? Um, essentially, working on a project at the moment. Uh, you mentioned uh, World Game Changers. So working on a project project we've got a um an initiative in london at the end of october a three-day summit it's our first one so world game changes uh will be two years old this june and we feel that the timing is right to you know to bring things to really go out there to the world you know we've been putting a lot of infrastructure in place um and so october the timing is perfect really to to start um you know, showcasing what, what we do, our people, but more importantly, the inspirational messages and support um, that we can offer the world. Um, and that, so, yeah, he- everybody's heavily involved in that at the moment. Um, it's taking a lot of focus, a lot of energy, a lot of innovation, but it's going to be a phenomenal um, initiative and project, I'm sure. So perhaps tell us a bit more about World Game Changers. What's that all about? <laughs> It started um, from a very, and I'm going to oversimplify this, David, but, you know, just want to leave the world a better place. And that's come from my, that spark uh, came from, you know, I've done charitable work all my life, even from a a youngster, part of my mantra, which I I was challenged later in life, my purpose, if you will. Um, I was challenged later in life about my patronising use of language when I used to say to people, I do what I do because I'm fighting for the underdog. Um, you know, I mean, I'm going back a few years when when that first came to the fore. And I've refined the language somewhat, David, but you know that essence of that purpose, what I'm doing, it's still the same. You know, trying to help others. And I suppose the driving force from, from my own personal point of view, and we've all got our, you know, our levers, our own levers, but mine was, I just don't want people to suffer the way I suffered. You know, it was touch and go whether I actually, well, I, I, I didn't want to live. I hated myself. Um, the, my world was just, I use this word loosely, but broken. And um, I just didn't want to live. And, you know, to be in that pain, well, actually, I'm going to change that word, that suffering, because pain's actually quite useful, isn't it? In, uh, if we use it as a powerful lever, we're aware of it. But suffering isn't no. um and that is the simple kind of catalyst for wanting to change things to say to people and what i learned one of the many things i learned david on my journey is you know whatever 
I think we, we kind of get so trapped in our own goldfish bowl as a human being and we think we're the only one and nobody cares. And, you know, and, and I'll take responsibility for my own statement here. We slip into, well, I slipped into victim mode. Poor old me. Why is it always me that this, nobody else has, you know, has this? Well, actually, Paul, yeah, they do. And whatever it is, you know, to use that old well-known cliche, there's always somebody worse off. Mm-hmm. So you're suffering then. Would you, would you care to share a bit more about, about that? Yeah, absolutely. So when I was eight, my mother remarried, um, married a guy next door. She split from my biological father when I was three. Um, I mean, essentially, he was a wife beating drunk. Uh, and uh, so they split when I was three, we went to live with my grandmother. And when, when I was eight, she married the guy next door. And within no time at all, the, the relationship just went downhill very fast, both with, with my mother and me, particularly me, because I was the kid that he didn't want, you know. Um, anyway, you know, he made life very difficult for me. And I think it's fair to say that some of his subsequent acts, and this, this uh, carried on, David, over a six-year period from 8 to 14, um, were, were tantamount to being evil. Evil. Um, and then my mother used to stop in and try, you know, physical violence, mental cruelty, um, psychological abuse. I mean, it was just, it was, it was horrendous. It was barbaric. Uh, it really was. And I know a strong word. I'm very mindful of the language I use and the energy that words have. And, you know, even using words like evil and barbaric, you know, they're strong, dark words. So I kind of don't get attached to them too much. But it is a true reflection of what prevailed then. I've got no attachment with them now. I can use that word barbaric or evil, but just be mindful of its connotation of, oh, okay, don't keep saying that word too much, Paul, because, you know, the subconscious is always listening for instruction, for instruction. Why do you keep sending me that cue saying that word, that word, that word? So, you know, hence that old saying, just be careful what you focus on because it might just show. Um, and I've learned that to my uh, cost over the years. But anyway, that's another thing. So... You know, that at an early age then, or tend to be precise, uh, my mother was a secret drinker. It was her crutch to, um, I suppose, cope with her pain of taking beatings and all the, you know, all the um, the torture that went with the relationship. Um, and I found out where those secret stashes of drink were. And so I started helping myself. And so it numbed the physical pain temporarily. Hated it. Hated whiskey. She used to drink whiskey and sherry. And I hated the whiskey, just the smell. But it had that instantaneous, uh, made me feel sick, just the smell of it. But it had that, it, you know, that instantaneous effect of numbing the pain. But of course, it doesn't numb the pain because the real pain is emotional. Mm. And no amount of whiskey or sherry or whatever it is, is going to numb that. And so that was kind of the suffering, and that resulted, David. I just couldn't cope. So I needed, I needed something to believe in. I mean, I didn't know this at the time. I'm a kid just looking to survive, 
you know, but I've got the, neither the intellectual or the emotional maturity to understand any of this. All I knew was my mother loved me, my grandmother loved me, Rocky, my dog, uh, who stayed with my grandmother, loved me, and that was it. But I had a love in return, and that was a football club. Mm-hmm. Nottingham Forest Football Club, to be precise, my mm-hmm. hometown club. And that gave me some purpose, some focus, some raison d'etre. So I absolutely devoted all my energy in the direction. And what happened, David, was in 1974, there was an infamous quarterfinal uh, FA Cup tie with Newcastle United, and Forrest were winning 3-1 away at Newcastle. There was a pitch invasion, and Newcastle ended up excuse me, winning 4-3. And because of the pitch invasion and the Forest players being attacked and all this kind of stuff, there was a replay. And in the replay at Everton's Goodison Bark, it was nil-nil. So there was a second replay. Uh, Because in those days, there was no extra time and penalties like there is in the modern game. Um, Anyway, in the second replay, Newcastle Newcastle triumphed 1-0. And they went on to meet Liverpool in the final. and uh, to which they lost 3-0 in the final. But for me, the point of that was, that was on the 21st of March, 1974. That was a Thursday when they lost in that second replay. Two days later, they played away at Fulham, Craven Cottage at Fulham's ground in London. They lost 2-0, ironically again, to a team in black and white. And what I termed this, David, in latter years was my black and white curse because my life had been black and white. There was no grey areas. I didn't take prisoners. It was do or die. And this was the mindset that I developed. But what was interesting about that second defeat to Fulham on the 23rd of March, 74, was I felt this, I was actually physically sick because I felt betrayal by my football team. The one thing I'd given my belief to, my identity, I'd given all my power away to a football team. And when they was winning, it was great. My world was great. Well, relatively speaking, you know, amongst all the other stuff that was going off. But that gave me that purpose, you know, the reason to get out of bed in the morning, if you will. But when they lost those two games, betrayal, hurt, doesn't even touch it. And I can remember using words like that. It's like, how can you do this to me? How can you break my arm? I've dedicated my life to you. This is a kid of 13 and a half, by the way. But this was my thinking. Such was my desperation for survival. What happened that um, fateful night of that evening of the 23rd of March? I attempted suicide. I couldn't cope with it anymore because my one big reason for living had been betrayed, or so I thought according to my belief system. Um, and obviously that didn't materialise, and that's another story, um, quite quite a, an interesting story, but um, maybe another time, another place on that one. But that essentially, uh, David, was, was the darkness that prevailed for six years. But what happened, because of that suicide attempt didn't happen, I vowed that I would never, ever run. You know, when we talk about that fight, flight or freeze, and yet again, as a kid, I didn't know anything about this, but I knew one thing, I was never going to run away again. Why should I lose my life over somebody that's doing this to me? 
or a football team that I had that eureka moment. And as a result, it's like, okay, from now on, I fight for the underdog. I fight for those that can't help themselves. Because I suppose looking back on it, I was so close to becoming a victim, so close. But that realisation, uh, as a reflect in latter years, David, was, no, no more victim. I will fight for the underdog now. And that really has become my life's purpose from that very tender age of 13 and a half. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I mean, that's... um. That's a deep. That's a deep story, and and for all of that to happen to you, you know, before really you've you've almost reached your teenage years is uh, is, is is a lot to take in. Really, I mean, kids these days have a lot to deal with, don't they? But yeah. but that's um, that is that is you know heavy stuff, and so I'm sorry about that. But but well well done you for, for for making that decision. I mean, what do you think it was that was inside you then that then chose that moment to come out and say, no, this is going to be different. It wasn't something I consciously decided. It was a decision. I believe when we talk about purpose, David, I think there's two levels. There's our purpose from a human consciousness level that, okay, this is what I'm going to dedicate my life to because I'm very aware of it, you know. Um, and that can, as we know, can take, you know, I'm, I'm going to be a dedicated family, loving family man um, is a fantastic purpose or, you know, a loving, devoted mother. I mean, you know, the latter for me is is arguably the ultimate purpose in this, you know. For mothers in particular, um, I, I'm massively, uh, the, the number of fights I used to get into in, because I was a very violent young man, I was a very angry young man, I was waging war on society, particularly males, particularly men, and I used to come unstuck quite a lot because I was still a youngster. But one of the things that used to get me into a lot of trouble was when I used to hear things like, oh, the woman at home, or she's only a housewife, she knows her place, oh, I used to go spare. And it's still, you know, I've done a lot of inner work, but I've still got that little change of language on that. I mean, I don't get involved in the conflict because if I, if I hear that nonsense, I'll walk away from that particular energy now. Um, but over the years. So I don't think it was a conscious decision per se. It was taken for me. Um, in fact, I'm going to elaborate on it because you've asked the question. So I, when I run away to do the dastardly deed, um, it's about two miles from where I live. David, it was like from a mining village, a very earthy working class mining village um, area where I worked, um, sorry, where I lived. And um, there was some local caves like where the, the coal lorries used to go through. And we used to, the kids, the locals all called them Dicky Dido's. I don't know where the name come from, but we're Dicky Dido's anyway. So I ran away to Dicky Dido's and I took a razor blade with me. And Nobody would find me. Um, and I went there. And I remember sitting in this, this kind of little small cave thing, very shallow cave, with my back against the wall. So there was nobody behind me. It was only... And just as I was ready to do the dastardly deed with the, the razor blade in my right hand towards my left wrist, something pushed me from behind. Nothing could have pushed me because my back was against the wall. And there was something that happened in that very defining moment. I hit the floor. I went forward. I hit the floor, and I sobbed, and I sobbed, and I sobbed, and I sobbed. 
what seemed like a lifetime, that release of energy. Now, the significance of that, David, is I hadn't cried for years because I was brought up with that big boys don't cry, only sissies and girls cry. <laughs> that was the language I was fed daily. And so I suppressed that emotion. It's like, okay. And, and that made me very, very angry, all that trapped energy. But that release then and that kind of – so. and then when I got up and looked for the blade, the blade wasn't there. I mean, that's a bit far out there as a story, <laughs> but it's a true kind of account of what actually happened mm. all those years ago. Well, thank goodness for that. <laughs> But you know what, David, when you said earlier on, I'm sorry for this, I'm absolutely not sorry for any of these experiences. Yeah. I'm really not. And the guy, my my ex-stepfather, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, I won't be sending him Christmas cards, but there's nothing there. It's just forgiveness. And obviously not for for his benefit, but for mine, because I've come to terms with the whole, and, and, and I will use the word gratitude or where it's led me to in terms of my soul purpose. So that's why earlier on when, in my understanding, of everything I've come to experience, and this is not necessarily just from a conscious or rational perspective, but it's from a, a deeper knowing of those two level levels of purpose. There's, there's things that we do, I feel, on a conscious kind of more human level, and there's things that we do at a far deeper level that, quite unexplainable that's for me soul's purpose that's is what i truly feel the path that that i'm on and sometimes it doesn't make sense doesn't make sense to me but that's where faith comes in to say look paul you're not here to fathom it out it's not some mathematical formula you're not going for a maths degree here you just have the faith to follow the path Mm. and if it I suppose if it feels right, then, then, then that's that's a big part of it. I mean, are you, are you a are you the sort of person that feels thing? Think things? Are you a kind of a a heart type person or are you a head type person? Both. I dance. Okay, you're a dancer. I'm a dancer. I'm a metaphoric dancer. I'm certainly not a physical dancer. <laughs> when people say they've got two left feet. Well, I'm not one to say my cat's blacker than your cat, but I've probably got six left feet. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Okay. Well, because it's uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because yeah, you're right. That 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 deep that deep sense of purpose is something that if you can tap into that it's incredibly powerful because there's this uh, what's it called paradox where you know it, in order to have faith in something you have to believe and in order order to believe in something you have to have faith but the initial energy has got to come from somewhere hasn't it so so i guess what you're saying is your energy came from that almost life-saving experience that you can't quite explain but that's what's projected you forward from that point yeah, absolutely. And, there was, you know, there's been subsequent experiences in my life, David, where, you know, I've suffered and that, that suffering's been alleviated. And actually, I shouldn't be here because I was involved in, you know, certain shenanigans where my life was seriously at risk. And um, I shouldn't be here, but I am here. And, you know, when you go through 
life-challenging experiences like that, you kind of come out the other side and think, okay, I'm here to do a job. I'm here to do a job. And, and actually, when the head's saying, look, your head's telling you completely, you know, other things. So there's this, I think it was the Sioux tribe that coined that phrase, the longest journey you'll ever take is between the head and the heart. So, um, you know, I'm not saying it's been easy, David, but I'll tell you what, what a roller coaster and what a beautiful life it's been. Looking back on it all, all the tears, the tantrums, this, that, the joy, the elation, the polarization that's took place. It's been massive. I've, thankfully, I've reached the stage now uh, because I've passed 21 plus hmm. where, you know, life's more. Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, I'm in a, a beautiful space these days because I realise what my my true purpose in life is on a more conscious day to day level, and certainly from a deeper, what I term, soul's purpose perspective. Okay, so so coming forward then a few years then your 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 purpose is then to to fight for the underdog. Yeah, how how do you uh, work out? which underdog it is that you should be fighting for? Because there's lots of different experiences that people have in life, um, which, which, make, which might make them an underdog. You know, how, how do you differentiate? What do you feel drawn towards? I mean, certainly as um, with that awareness, you know, that that was what I was about, people that came into my immediate um, you know, into my immediate awareness of through what, you know, so if somebody needed some money or somebody needed help or somebody was getting bullied, you know, there was an interesting situation where this was about, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. No, maybe a touch more. I was actually come from a forest match and I took my oldest daughter and was walking back after the match through the city centre of Nottingham. And we was crossing this zebra crossing. And as um, was crossing it. I got my daughter um, to my side there. There was this guy walking towards me and he was staring at me. Now, because of my street awareness, this like flagged up danger. And so I got my daughter to the other side and I never took my eyes off him because my initial uh, perception was what's his problem? This is going to kick off. And that was, that was my street conditioning. So as we passed each other on the zebra crossing, a couple of steps forward, I looked behind and he looked behind, but he smiled. And he said to me, it's Paul, isn't it? And I said, yeah, who are you? Because I was still defensive. And, you know, and he said, uh, Lawrence, Lawrence who? So don't you remember me from school? From school, I can't remember what I did yesterday, let alone school. I mean, you know, he'd have been going back 20-odd years, David. Mm. Anyway, he said to me, he said, I was the little black snotty-nosed kid that you used to protect when everybody was bullying me. I was the kid that you used to look after. I couldn't even remember it. And he come up and he said, is this your daughter? And I said, yeah. And he was, you know, he was loving, loving her. And, you know, he said, your dad is such a hero. This was like, I don't know, maybe it'd be about probably around the same age, actually. No, a bit younger because this would have been in primary school. So I'd probably been about 10 or 11. 
But, you know, I still had that mindset. So that's just one simple example. I didn't know what I, I was just doing what, you know, what I was doing. And on another note, um, David, somebody said to me recently, well, I raised the question, that old saying, you cannot give what you do not have, which on the surface of it seems quite a logical statement to me. However, for me, it was totally illogical because certainly in my earlier years, I used to give what I didn't have. You know, I was not in a position, I was not strong, in, uh, strong emotionally or mentally or anything like that. But somehow, because of what I now understand was my purpose, I still managed to give things to people. I still managed to give that love and protection to people like Lawrence. And there were others because that sparked a trip down memory lane. And he said, actually, now I'm the uh, manager of, of this certain pub right in the centre of Nottingham, a nice pub. He said, my mother's coming down on Saturday, next Saturday. Why don't you come down and visit the family? He said, because my mother's never met you, but she knows about you. And it's like, I was just bowled over. It's, what? Uh, and I went down and, um, the, you know, Lawrence's mother was there. And it was like, talk about being, you know, welcome back into the family bosom, which wasn't my family, obviously. But actually, in many ways, David, I thought it was. So just going back to that, you cannot give what you do not have. Actually, for me, it's a misnomer because I gave money I didn't have. If somebody needed money, I'd borrow it because I wasn't rich. Far from it. I was very poor, very poor as a, you know, as a, as a youngster and as a young man growing up because I, I had a drink addiction to feed as well. And that wasn't cheap. So in terms of, you know, how do we know what to serve? Intuition, heart, you just know. You know, I suppose it's a bit like, how do you know when you love? I don't know. Just do. Mm, yeah. And you've talked about love quite quite a lot. You've mentioned that word quite a lot. So so again, you know the posi the positive words and all that they 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 play through. The more you use them, the, the more they manifest and all that sort of stuff. But you read a lot about, or certainly I read a lot about, or hear a lot about uh, people who've been in you know abusive relationships or or. or or you know they've suffered from abuse that can quite often play forward into their future lives and and they become abusive themselves because that's the only behavior they know so so how 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 have you managed some of those sort of feelings and tensions because you said you know you you're on the streets and all that sort of stuff you got that kind of mentality how have you managed to break that pattern of behavior in your life what a great question um, I don't think it's a pattern I've broken, David, other than, you know, when we look at our energies as people, irrespective of whether we've got a male or female body, isn't it true that we all have, to whatever degree, masculine and feminine energies within us? We all have that. We are energy when all said and done. Obviously, we've got a predominant or most have a predominant um, energy. Um, so I didn't break, I, I, I haven't broke the pattern. I'm not either or. I've still got that sort of, um, somebody said to me, what would you do if somebody come to you now on the streets with a knife? I'd defend myself. That, that would still kick in. Mm -hmm. 
And I would do that to protect my love. I'd, I'd do it to protect people full stop. So I don't think you ever lose that out of your locker. But what, from a conscious choice point of view of how I live my life day to day, yes, and I fully understand and accept, David, about, you know, the use of positive language, et cetera, yeah. That's, that's to me, is kind of, is one side of the coin. The real deepness, the C drive is what emotions, you know, you can, I can put out words there, you know, as a so-called academic, I can create, you know, written masterpieces or so I've been told, which I find quite flattering. <laughs> the point is that's relatively superficial. It's just words on paper. Okay, words have power, words have energy, but what's really going off energetically underneath brings in the question of integrity. Never mind what you tell the outside world and you label yourself this and you plant all over social media that you're doing this and you're doing that which I don't do because I just live my life in a way that's true to myself, one of my values, loyalty to thine own self be true. Um, and I just shine the best way I can, you know, and when we speak, just as this conversation, uh, David, some people resonate, some won't, and both are fine mm. because I'm not trying to convince anybody that, you know, I don't set myself up as a guru. I've got the answers, you know, do this, do that. I don't know. We're all on our own path of self-discovery. So, yeah, that, that's kind of it, really. Because we've all got choices to make, haven't we? And, uh, and no matter what your experience, uh, you, can, you, can, you can still, I believe, you can still make a decision. Because you are making decisions anyway, right? So you're deciding to have a drink or to not have a drink. And it's a decision one way or another. You know, you're deciding to... Uh, to to love, respond with love or respond with hate. It's a decision. And yeah. that whole thing about, especially if you're kind of a, a more of a feeler than a thinker, uh, you know, recognising those feelings within you, perhaps those triggers, uh, all of that sort of stuff and and learning how to, to, to manage your emotions, to channel, channel that energy into things that serve you is, is a skill that, that, that takes a lifetime to develop. I think, um, you know, have you got any, uh, I don't know, tips or advice for people who, who, who recognize their emotions, but don't seem to be able to contain them or control them. It's more the other way around. Yeah. Um, and you're right there. You're absolutely right. It is, a, it is a choice, but when we're at the bottom of the mountain or the bottom of the pit looking up, it can be damn hard. Oh, you know, I've had this. It's all right for you, Paul, to talk all this fancy talk around this and the other. You don't understand that my life's X, Y, and Z. And, you know, my partner just left me and I've just lost my job. And, you know, and all, you know, whatever the situation. And I said, well, do you know, no matter what the situation, you're right. We do have a choice. Now, for me, this choice that it is a daily thing for me is a momentary thing moment by moment is that awareness and we talk about you know i talked about the black and white polarization the black and white years that i lived in in many respects that's a great metaphor for fear versus love and i believe in the simplicity of life you know the first book i wrote in 2000 was called the game of life and it was based on my exploits in football and how you know as players in the game and the beautiful game as it's known, we can be very defensive. 
like it's a defender. We can be very uh, flair-minded, creative, searching for goals, striker. However we want to play the game. And that, you know, for me, when I played uh, at a decent level, I was very cynical, I was very dirty because that reflected my inner world of anger. I don't want to score to achieve goals, but I tell you what, you ain't going to achieve them either. And if you go past me as a fullback, I'm going to break your legs. And that's the way I lived my life and played the game. I can remember punching my captain once because he lost the toss. <laughs> I mean, this is how crazy my world was, David. And when when was know? this? Oh, this was a long time. How old would it be? Um, my early 20s. Okay. Yeah. He lost the toss and he said, come over here, Andrew. Bang. <laughs> <laughs> Madness. That'll learn. That'll learn him. That'll learn him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Get a double-sided double coin in the future. <laughs> okay, then. So, so, so from that, then, I take it that, that it's been a journey since that, that time in the cave when you were 13, 14, then. It's been, it's been a journey then from, from there with its, with its ups and downs, then, by the sounds of it. So, so, so why don't you take us, take us through your, your 20s and 30s and 40s and just give us... Maybe just give us high point, low point in each decade of life, or or, or less lesson lesson one, lesson two, maybe in each decade of, of your life, and then and then I want to talk about what game changes a bit more. Okay, so gladly do that, David. But you did ask me a question around tips, uh, and I didn't. I, I don't feel I answered that sufficiently because it was a very powerful question that okay. you asked, and I feel like I've done it justice. All right, go on. Um, so for anyone that's in that space, and this is kind of out, um, out of the Louise A kind of school of thinking, um, and the masculine energies might find it more challenging, but we're simple things. And yes, it is initially around that self-reinforcing, um, self that self-lifting language of like when you look in the mirror, just say, and then this can be quite difficult and awkward at first, but just tell that person how much you love them and forgive them. You know, music's been a massive, mass, massive passion and uplifter in my world. You know, what kind of music is it that, you know, can you listen to soft, soothing music? You know, that creative form, creativity is, is for me what it what it's all about you know creative ways of thinking differently being different and these can be really really simple basic things and and the other thing david is we're taught or we're expected not to be aggressive not to be this not to be angry do you know what in the confines of your own sort of space let it out release that energy because when we look at this frustration that we feel this anger this Whatever it is, just release it. Punch the pillow. Punch the pillow. You pig your words to that effect. Use expletive, even at times, violent language. I've done it. It works because you're releasing all that pent-up energy, frustration. Call it what you will. You know, they're just some of the things. And, and one of the amusing stories to share, um, I was coaching with a client about I don't know, seven or eight years ago and then we was talking around x y and z and he'd come to me for a referral so um you know he knew of me or certainly my background 
and um, he was trying to tell me what a tough guy he was and this, that, and the other. And, um, and I said, yeah, okay, all right, um, fine, if, if that's how you, you know, your model of the world. So I said, you know, one thing that I, you know, I don't sort of play the tough guy role or any of the macho man or anything. One of the things that I, I kind of understand or think I understand is a real tough guy. They're tough because they'll meet all life's decisions head on. That, that to me, and he said, yeah, yeah, I get that. Yeah, yeah. I said, even if at first they don't like the idea of what's being said, yeah, 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 I get all that. It's great. I said, because you know what I'm going to ask you to do? I'm going to ask you to kiss the mirror. Oh, I, you know, for the benefits of the listeners, David, I will not repeat the, uh, <laughs> but it was, yeah, when we say about colourful expletives, mm. um, and I said, look, okay, look, but you're, you're a big tough guy. You told me you're a big, what's the problem? Are you frightened that the mirror's going to hit you back or he's going to reject you? The mm. mirror ain't going to reject, is it? Mm. And I said, are you going to take it on and, you know, another round of it? Said, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. Right. Anyway, so we, <laughs> so we met the following week, follow-up session. I said, uh, you know, uh, I, said, I said, is there anybody in, in the else in the house with you? Yeah, yeah. My mother, I said, can you do me a favour? I said, will you just go and ask her to come and sit in the room for just for one minute? One minute. And he said, why? I said, look, please, just trust me. Just trust me on this. So he brought his mother down and I said, uh, hello, Mrs. So-and-so, you know, I'm Paul. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a friend of your son's and, you know, we're just talking. I don't go into any detail, obviously, you know, breaking confidentiality and all that. I said, um, but just want to just sit back and relax for a minute. No more. I won't take any more of your time. So put your son back on, please. Um, funny enough, his name was David. Mm -hmm. And um, so like David, I said, uh, how did you go on with your action? Knowing his mother's in the background. And he was muttering. I said, sorry, I couldn't quite get that. I said, how did you get on with your action of kissing the mirror? And there was a mortar <laughs> growling under his breath. And I said, I'm going to ask you for a third time, and I want you to be very clear about this, and I want you to state it in front of your mother. I kissed the mirror. Flipping this, flipping that, flipping the other. Yes, I kissed the mirror. I said, thank you so much. But what that was all about, really, was that release yet again, and I call it breaking the stallion, because the ego was saying, no, I can't drop, I can't drop this, I can't do this. I'm a macho man. Well. And that's part of the defense mechanism and the stuckness that we encounter as humans, David, isn't it? When we're in a situation, and I will say particularly more so from my experience with the masculine energy, don't lose face, don't drop your guard, don't drop the mask, you know, don't back down and all the big boys don't cry and all this ridiculous stuff. So that's just one, you know, a bit of a long-winded answer, but I felt it was very important to answer your um, your your great question around, you know, just a couple of techniques. Yeah, that is really helpful. Thank you. And thanks for going back to that. I appreciate it. I just got caught up in the conversation. <laughs> I, um, <laughs> I, 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 I do, I too have a little shout at myself from time to time. This is the expose on me that's coming out now, but if, particularly if I'm driving, I don't, I'm quite good now at controlling my emotions around other drivers and all that lot. But I, if I, if I feel like I need a good, good old fashioned release, 
then then yeah, shout, shouting at myself whilst driving, I find really helpful. I mean, some of the pe- if I'm in a queue of traffic, I can sometimes alarm other drivers. I think, uh, but um, I've had a couple of looks. But uh, but it doesn't happen very often. But every every now and then, if you just got something that you need to, let, it's better to let it out, I think, uh, than 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 to than to cage cage it up and it becomes then pent up and and all of that. Other outlets as well for me, uh, uh, I, I enjoy running. So yeah, and it's not just about anger, to be honest, or frustration. It's about any any kind of emotional state that I'm in before I go for a run. I return in a different emotional state and and that's because i've given myself the time to either reflect or just forget or to to focus on something else and i've expended some of that physical energy which is also part of the recharge of the of of the battery you know the the, all of those emotional energies as well i so i find that really helps me yeah and interesting will you when you bring that word fear in there david because that is the seed really that then manifest later into anger frustration etc you know and the old escalation but the, the root cause is fear mm. and it brings us back yet again in my humble opinion to that simple choice that conscious choice today am i going to be loving or am i going to be fearful mm. and when i say loving i mean loving towards self mm. Mm. you know i'll go and have a shave and it's you know what boy you are one handsome boy <laughs> you know, and I, I will i'll just joke to the mirror and then i'm you know i'm walking around kind of you know, just singing. I might not naturally want to sing a song mm. or hum a tune or whatever, but I'll do it because it just gets that momentum. It's like knocking that first domino over and then all of a sudden you just find yourself naturally in that energy, mm. you know, uh, because it's all energy, David, at the end of the day, is it not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you can harness that as a as a force for good instead of a force for, and I'll use the word, evil or even just you know, complaining, defending, all of those sorts of things that, that people spend their energy on. If you can invest it, in fact, in something that's going to be a force for good, that's going to help other people, then the world can be a better place. Just on what you've said there, sparked my mind into the deadly three C's, criticism, comparison, complaint. Be aware of the deadly three C's. Good advice. Very good advice. Okay, so... Your, um, I asked you. I asked another question about your 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 highs and lows in your in your twenties, uh, thirties, and forties. Then, just to give us that feel for 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 how your life continued. Okay, so in the twenties, um, I got married, um, had three beautiful kids well four we lost the first one um massively massively not just my 20s but my life um my kids are growing up now i've got grandkids um undoubtedly if not the biggest highlight certainly part of the biggest highlights of my life uh happened in my 20s also my lowest um period um, happened then as well because I split from my wife towards um, my late 20s ended up back at my mother's and and when I left um, as a teenager uh, at 14 David I vowed that one day I would return and kill the guy my stepfather and that day my intention came when I was 28 so I'd had 14 years of festering um, a really tormented alcohol addiction in between 
and um, our whole kind of merry-go-round of, like I say, polarised life of existence from the elation of having uh, four kids um, to, you know, getting really good career moves. Because when I was drinking, I adopted the black and white. I was either on it, which was what I called my black face, black phases, uh, my dark phases, um, or I was off it, which was my white you know, or my light. So I've changed the wording now, but I'm going back to language I use. My black and white years is actually my dark and light years. Because um, I've got quite a few friends that uh, come from Car- Afro-Caribbean um, backgrounds and I'm like, oh, you, are you referring to us then because of those? No, <laughs> you need to change your language. It's just, okay, I accept that. Mm-hmm. No, no offence, hopefully, your cause there. So that, you know, that darkness and light prevailed in, I would say, in my 20s, that was arguably the, the real sort of polarisation yet again, David, of that elation of three kids and, you know, uh, and I was also doing a lot of charitable stuff and raising shed loads of money, fighting for the underdog, if you will, um, to that. But I couldn't sustain it because I had deep-rooted deservedness issues, self-hatred. Despite the love I had from my family, um, I couldn't sustain it. But that is the one thing, the one thread throughout the, the years that's kept me going, love. Because even though I had the challenge and I had the, the deservingness and I had the self-hatred, I knew that people loved me. You know, I knew that my ex-wife, she was an amazing, is an amazing woman still. Um, and the partners. So the one thing that kept me going through all this was love. Love of womankind. That's got better over the years and, and it's got more open now to the point where love of, of people. But it was for many years, David, certainly in my 20s, guys did not come into the equation mm. at all because I wouldn't let them in. Guys, to me, represented violence, mm. and I'm going to get in first. Mm. Mm. So in a nutshell, that was that was the sort of two-polarised example of the 20s. Um, the 30s, I'd, by then, um, I'd split with my wife and I'd uh, – I decided to go into higher education. Um, you know, all my life, people, you're a right clever so-and-so, Paul, you are. And it's, what? And, you know, I didn't kind of get it, but I thought, okay, so I was out of work at the time. I, um, I was 31 at the time, and I decided to do this access course, which was like a crash course for people that to go to university. It was a one-year any, a crash course. So I did that, passed that, went on to uni, massively felt out my local university uh, Nottingham Trent uh, massively felt out of place David with these young bright kids you know just out of A levels bright as buttons razor sharp but it was a, you know it took me some you know because yet again you know part of the mantra where I come from the inner city council I say the, the you know the mining village was boys like us don't go to to, uh, to university we go to prison and that, that was the reality of my environment. You know, we don't do all that fancy stuff. We don't play tennis. We box. You know, it was that very earthy kind of outlook. So I was, I was up against that as well from, from an internal point of view. Um, but the young people were great. 
I mean, they took me on board as kind of the elder statesman and they recognised that, you know, I, academically I might not have been the most gifted, but what I gave in return was life experience. And I used to sit down, we used to talk around, you know, whatever. Um, and it, so it was a great relationship generally that we shared. So my academic um, journey lasted all the way through my 30s. I was on that wheel for 11 years, resulting in doing a first year of a doctorate, um, which I then walked away from because it was too academic. I was actually creating a blueprint to make the world a better place. And the professor who was overseeing uh, my thesis, he had, me, he, he had me in at the end of the first year. It was a three-year doctorate. and said, uh, you've passed the first year. And I always remember his words. He said, but it's academic tosh. They were his exact words. And I thought, mm, I don't know. I think he means it's not very good. <laughs> and I was still a bit fiery in those days. David, and my response to him was, well, I'll cut all the, uh, the colourful bits. That was, I really don't care. This has got substance. I'm not bothered about the style, which is probably not a good thing to say to an academic when you're on a, you know, a doctorate level course. So I walked away from it. Um, so that was, but also the charitable work um, and the relationships, um, you know, because I'd split from my wife and I had a, a three year, three and a half year relationship, which, and we talk about love. Wow, it was phenomenal. But yet again, I sabotaged it. I don't deserve this. How do I deserve this amazing, beautiful woman? And physically, she was beautiful. But more importantly, internally, she was even more beautiful. She was such an amazing woman in my life. But I sabotaged it. As I sabotaged everything, David, whether it was a career, it doesn't matter what it was, I, I reverted back to dark. And that was very dominant in the 30s. Um, then got into another relationship in my mid-30s with another amazing lady who I ended up being with for 10 years. Yet again, um, ultimately, I didn't, I didn't actually sabotage that, or so I thought, but actually I did, and that's another story. So that was the 30s, so that was very much around learning, and that was very much around loving. Okay, and so... We're all work in progress, aren't we? So, so then in, into your forties, what was the, what was the high point there? Into my forties, um, by this time I'd kind of gone back into the workplace. Um, I was, you know, I was earning good money, and then I got in with a lady. Um, no, sorry, that was ten years later. Um, I'm still with this particular lady. Uh, we had a, you know, we had a great life together. Um, it was the 40s. What was that predominantly about? Um, it's a good question. I think it was probably more of the same. Um, the, you know, the pattern kind of prevailed, you know, raising shed loads of money. I'm trying to think if there's any specific things, but it was a continuation really because by, you know, by this time, the model was kind of ground in. Build yourself up, reach the peak, throw it away. End up in the gutter, feel sorry for yourself, right, snap out of this. And I suppose what happened, just thinking about it on, on the spot, David, what happened in my 40s was the magnification 
or the the extent of that polarization to keep using that word became even greater because that was probably because my awareness was becoming you know my highs were higher and my lows were lower so that was kind of my overriding thoughts but it was still around the same thing really it was around love 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 has just become such a massive massive part of my world and the charitable work and my way of saying you know this is my expression of who i am but I, and i'm going to put a caveat on that there was a lot of selfishness in that as well because it helped my healing and when we talk about the six human needs it fed my need for significance it gave me a sense of purpose but best i do that you know even in an egotistical way to try and kind of you know climb out the metaphoric hole what better way than helping others i think it was kobe said the best way to uh, to learn is to teach not that i class myself as a teacher per se but i suppose in many respects that's what i was sharing my life experiences and you know going back to that adage david you cannot give what you do not have although i was still a mess actually from somewhere somehow i was giving stuff that i didn't have because emotionally i certainly wasn't stable mm-hmm. and uh life is a uh, i've i've heard it described as a uh you know, people look for balance in life, don't they? And everyone is chasing, well, not everyone, but lots of people are chasing this thing about balance, whether it be work-life balance or whatever. Uh, but uh, but uh, if you look at it uh, as more of a sort of a pendulum, then, you know, you've got a pendulum that swings and, uh, you know, people are looking for this kind of always perfect life you know the kind of the, the the cottage with the with the with a nice nice uh, nice nice fence around it and roses up the path and all that or whatever their vision is but but you know the pendulum swings between struggle and progress and so you've got this you've got this swing going on on the whole time and with every with every swing of the pendulum one learns more about oneself if one's open to it and uh, and I suppose that then influences the the the, deg- the degree of uh, or, or, or the the extremes of the, that that polarization as 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 time goes on, perhaps. And uh, mm-hmm. and so I guess that's kind of again a way I've heard life described. And it sounds like you know you, your story can be really helpful for people because you had that really mega kind of life-saving event uh, in in your teenage early teenage years and since then your life has been on a pendulum swing and it's it's not all been a bed of roses but there's been lots of love and and lots of good that's come from it and uh and and your story can give quite a lot of a lot of hope to a lot of people i think because you know look at look at you now and where you are now and what you're doing now and uh and 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 the difference that you're making to so many lives. Thank you for that, David. And I suppose the you know just to bring in and build on your analogy of the pendulum, the key thing there I feel for all of us is to have that awareness to say, okay, but I am not the pendulum. I am not the pendulum. I am the person watching the pendulum. So we kind of self-observe. We detach. 
I mean, I suppose I'm going into the uh, non-duality philosophy here, but we, you know, are you the actor in the film, brackets the victim, or are you the director, or are you the screen? Because the one thing that stays ever constant is the screen, the TV screen, the film screen, the things that change are the scenes that are shown on the screen or on the TV. And isn't it true that as humans, we think we are that TV program? You know, sometimes, and I did it myself years ago, people that get that engrossed, I did it with my football team, but they get that engrossed in the characters in a soap that it dominates the world rather than observing the soap opera or the TV program or the film or whatever it is. And I, that's a great metaphor for me. David, because I think, you know, learn to become the director of your own film. Don't become the actor. You ain't the actor. Or if you are, at least know you're playing that role. Because I think Clint Eastwood did quite a lot. He directed his own films that he acted in. So that's probably a good way of saying, just be aware that you are, first and foremost, you are the director. Don't let the tail wag the dog or don't let the actor determine the script. You determine the script as the director and let the actor know what's happening. So if he or she then plays a role in life, to bring back in your pendulum analogy, David, where, oh, do you know what, it's far over there where it's very challenging, gunfight at the OK Corral, do not forsake me, oh my darling, on this our wedding day, <laughs> the drama, or, oh, life's beautiful. You know, whatever, it doesn't matter. Just observe it because, you know, at the risk of splitting metaphors, like clouds in or sun in the sky, it will all come and go. The one thing that remains ever constant is you or the sky. Fantastic. Well, listen, Paul, that, that's so helpful, so helpful. Thank you so much. So, so just to conclude, then, because I'm conscious of I'm conscious of time. Uh, will game changes? Uh, so, so tell us a bit more about World Game Changers and and how people can find out more about that and get more involved. Okay, so World Game Changers probably the best way, David, is to you know is to tell you what our mission is, and it's we are we are catalysts. You know, we don't fix people, we don't aspire that we've got all the answers. We're catalysts together. We call our just ourselves collectively the WGC family, the World Game Changers family. We're a bunch of, you know, I used to, in a former life, used to be involved with the Lions International, and they had a great saying, ordinary people doing extraordinary things. That's a great tagline. Um, and that kind of sums up what World Game Changes is about. You know, we're, we're based all over the world, um, different, you know, labels, if you will, but we've got one common aim, and we are catalysts for purpose, prosperity, and peace. And, and that kind of, you know, so we're developing, you know, we've got 10 what we call legs, life-enhancing goals that we build around. Um, we've got lips underneath those, which are love-inspired projects. And we just, you know, we have a fun, we're a fan, we have fun. Yeah, we have a, you know, a little squabble here and there, as families do. <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in a very simple way, David, that's, that's kind of who we are and what we do. So probably the best way is just to check out the website, which is worldgamechangers.org. Excellent. Thank you very much. That's, that's great. We'll do that for sure. So a couple more final questions then to, to, to ask you before we close, if that's okay. 
So, um, so what's the most important lesson you've learned? The importance of values. Um, and if I can briefly share my five, which are deeply ingrained, I've got my five L's, life, the importance and the gift of this beautiful gift called life. Without life, there is nothing. So that's the basic starting point. Learning to go on a voyage of self-discovery. Discovery about what? To go on a voyage of learning about self-discovery, about loving the most in my humble opinion, the most powerful energy is love. So life, learning, loving. The fourth one is, well, what are you going to do with all this? I'm going to create a legacy. I'm going to pass on my lessons. I'm going to have conversations with people across the board with no judgment, and we share experiences, um, and that creates a legacy. And then the final, fifth one, David, is the, the loyalty. In this, and this probably addresses your question actually more poignantly, whatever you do to thine own self, be true. Be loyal to yourself. Because if you can't be loyal to yourself, you've got no chance of being loyal to anyone else. Very, very powerful. Thanks, Paul. And, and, and then my final question is, uh, what advice would you give to someone who wants to find and follow their purpose? Just set that intention. Just say, do you know what, as simple as we're going back to looking in the mirror, do you know, I want to know what my purpose is. And it's like, well, okay, that's a bit woolly, that's a bit flaky. Can't you give me something more? You know, it's very easy for me now to be able to elaborate my five L's, my mission, my vision, my values, this, that, the, all my philosophies. I've had a lifetime to work through that. I can remember Robbins saying, you can change your life, Tony Robbins, saying you can change your life in a heartbeat. And he used to think, that is American hype. It's actually true. The bit he misses off is it needs somebody uh, like a mentor just to point you to say, okay, to give you that sort of, uh, otherwise you go on that sort of, um, you know, that long voyage of discovery, David, that long voyage of discovery. So, you know, um, to, to give you, yeah, I would say, Get yourself a good buddy or a good mentor or a good coach. You know, get aligned with somebody that's been a couple, maybe just one step in front because they can guide you and steer you and support you so you don't have to go the hard way, the way that it's took me a lifetime to learn my lessons. But I wouldn't change a single thing because what a journey it's been. Brilliant. And uh, yeah, we all need a little bit of help along the way, don't we? So um and, and so, Paul, you've got your own website as well, haven't you? So, uh, which has got some useful resources on. So, what's the uh, URL for that? It's paul low with an e.com. Excellent. So, if you want to find out more about Paul and Paul's work, then you've got two places to go uh, uh, World Game Changers and his own website. Uh, Paul, thanks very much for coming on People with Purpose. I uh, definitely believe that if you can find your purpose, you'll find the key to unlock your best life. And you seem to be living proof of that. So, uh, so thanks for coming on and sharing your story. I know it's going to help a lot of people. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to People With Purpose. I hope you've enjoyed the show and are enjoying going on this journey. Please remember to like and subscribe and give us a five-star review. Uh, tell all your friends. And if you're interested in finding out more about any of the things we've covered in this episode of People With Purpose, just get in touch. All the details are in the show notes. Thanks. Bye.